double check. Should we work on everything? Shouldn't you do that before you do the clacker? Well, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, once the clacker goes, how much time do we have? Is it like clacker go? No, clacker well, I mean, we are going now, but. Are we recording? Yeah. Oh, gosh, he's recording everything. Okay. All right. We're back in the professional studio. Yeah, for sure. So you're, I get, I'm taking it, you're ready then. I'm ready. Okay. We are rolling. I, I'm not necessarily sure I'm ready, but I was anyway. Say, are you prepared for this one? I'm not really. <laughs> you know what? I think it, it usually goes well when we just kind of wing it anyway. Well, that's what we're going to have to do. Okay. So ready? Welcome everybody to the kitchen table. Again, we are your amateur podcasters. Now, Captain Josh Winter, we haven't done one since you've been promoted. No, we haven't. Uh, and I'm Justin White. Thank you all for listening. Welcome. So, Captain, brand new promotion. How was your uh, celebration after the after the promotion? You said you were going to go do we, something with the family. We did. We went and did something with the family. But, before we get into that, I still am at the point now where when somebody says captain, I still look around the room and go, where are they? <laughs> well, I, but, I, I don't believe that because I noticed the next day when you wore <laughs> your polo, you had a white piece of tape that said captain on it. That is not necessarily true. Well... Okay, maybe it was a little. No, a little it, bit it wasn't. True. No, yeah, no it so wasn't true. what I no, what I did do is I did I I kind of preempted and I went to Gauls and I had him sew on the uh, you know the the captain rank. So I you know day one I could make sure that I was in the proper uniform. Yeah. So I did do that. Your but. hand did reach for the collar a couple times ago because I have did. these. <laughs> That's why it, when when you see me do that you can slap my hand away. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was good. We uh, you know we we just did family stuff. COVID. And and uh, and obviously you know that I've got a large family, so we went and did uh, pizzas at um, where's that place that has the cauliflower crust that cheap mod pizza, mod pizza. Yeah, that's what we did. We went and did mod pizza. The subway of pizza places. Yeah, I I love it. I mean, especially for you know a family of seven. Plus we had my son's girlfriend with us, so family of eight. You go in and have pizzas for like you know. The entire family for a hundred bucks and you know first off no free ads so mod pizza we can only accept gifts fifty dollars or less <laughs> because that's the city rule so no free ads thank you to mod pizza yes ahead of time but anyhow um the promotion went well who did you get promoted with oh so it was a big promotion and here's what's interesting so when i promoted to lieutenant I had the opportunity to promote the same time as Chief Colas. And so that was, a, you know, obviously a big promotion. And um, now this time I had the unique opportunity to promote with Chief Royal 
and uh, Chief uh, Jamie McConnellog, who is also now our first female deputy chief on the Colorado Springs Fire Department. So even during COVID times, this was you know family only, but there ended up being quite a few people spread out in our in our bay there to kind of celebrate that that day with having a brand new fire chief since we just retired Chief Colas. What what was that about four days before that I think, and then uh, yeah. Yeah, it was the Friday before. Yep. Yep. And then, so, yep. And then we turned around and promoted uh, Chief Royal into his fire chief position. Uh, chief uh, Jamie um, McConnellog, uh, myself. Um, oh, now this is going to get really put me on the spot. And well, I, I couldn't remember, so I was putting who, you on the spot instead of me. So, um, <laughs> who was there? Who who also who also was getting promoted that day? Um, I I apologize. Maybe we're gonna have to like edit this and cut this part out because this is embarrassing. Yep. We had, we did have a lieutenant, and a paramedic, um, but so we had a bunch of um, lieutenant promotions. We had a couple, I think, mm-hmm. earlier that day, and then later on that day because everything was kind of spread out. Yep. Um, so the good news is, is you got to enjoy your promotion when the chiefs get promoted, but you can't get promoted again until another chief comes. So. That is that is very kind of setting the precedence that you only get promoted when the fire chief gets sworn in. So, yeah, well, so I think this is a lot of this is kind of make up for my very first promotion that I got on the job was to driver. And I did not know that I was going to get promoted to that position until about two hours before the promotion. If you remember that. I do. Yeah, that was. Yeah, a little mix up with um, the uh, the testing process back then. Um, there were some calculations that were a little bit wrong. Oddly enough, during the driver's test, where calculations are involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, the uh, there was a, a mix up, and then the department made it right. Um, you know, two years later, and and myself and um, now Lieutenant Edmonston, Michael Edmonston, got promoted to driver a couple hours after we found out that we were going to get promoted. So, yeah, it was an interesting day at station four because we were going back through basic math, trying to remember how (laughs) weighted averages worked. Yes, we were. um, Yeah. In fact, I think it was like by a point and a half or something that you missed the, missed the list. Yep. Right. And then got back on it. So they promoted you that day. That was chief Cox, wasn't it? It was. Yep. It was chief Cox. And so, um, yeah, they did make it right. That was, yeah. and I think that was even the quote from Cassie when she called you. You know, you're going to get promoted today. There was a mistake made, and we're going to make it right. Yep. If I if I remember correctly. Yep. That's that's absolutely what she yeah, said. So good good on them. Yep. Uh, for doing that, but just started off your your quirky promotional ceremonies. <laughs> yep. And then it just it kind of builded from there. So yeah. it's been it's been really great. I've felt you know, very fortunate these last two promotions to be in that time and place to get promoted with, you know, the chiefs of the department. And um, so I'm happy to be in the position that I'm at right now. Um, I'm happy that I get the opportunity to stay in the training division where I'm at because like I've continued to say, I just enjoy what I'm doing up here. You know, yeah, this is a, it's a great place to be at this time of my career. And um, you know, we'll do this for hopefully the next uh, three years and then uh, move back to a line position. 
Yeah, you'll see what happens, right? Yep. And we're happy to have you. And it's um, we've got some momentum moving in the in the training division and starting to do some good things with with the help of a lot of people throughout the department. Um, it's certainly not just the five of us, six of us, seven of us in the training division. Um, we're starting to bring people in uh, to get more help because we have a lot of talented people out on the line and we want to tap into that talent and, and get the training out because we know a lot of people out there are, are really wanting some of that now. Yeah. Um, when we talk about promoting a chief, that means one chief had to leave, right? So Fire Chief Ted Cole is retired after 34 years, I think, of service, 34 plus maybe. Um, and so this podcast, we got an opportunity to sit down with Chief Colas's family, which it, it was nice to uh, sit down and kind of learn more about the person. Um, I can honestly say in the 23 years that I've been here, I didn't know him that well. Um, he talks about where he was born. He was actually born in Pueblo, but um, we all know him as being Hawaiian because that's where he grew up and, and where he speaks about most. Um, but he actually came home when he came back to work uh, for Colorado Springs. And so to get those perspectives and those new stories on, on somebody that we see high up in the organization that we may not know real well, um, you know, many haven't known him other than chief, right? Uh, a lot of people have been hired since he was promoted even to battalion chief. Uh, so people don't remember necessarily that he was, you know, paramedic, firefighter, uh, before that, fourth class firefighter, trainee, um, all the steps that uh, many of our folks are going through right now in this department. Uh, he went through all those things and ended up at the highest rank within the fire department. So it was nice to talk to him and then to have his family in the room and, and share some of their experiences as well. Yeah, it's, it's such a great way to just capture history of our department. And it just it, this is a different way to document it. And I think this really expresses the emotions and feelings of you know the person or the family in a different way you know we've we have stories about people in the past and we have um, emails and letters that people have written when they've retired um, but this was just a really great opportunity and the other thing that i noticed from the podcast with chief dubay and now the podcast with chief colas is just what you said is i don't know members of our organization the way that I thought I did because we have these professional relationships um, we have kind of our work family and our working relationships and that's not always the same person that you that you know off duty and and to be able to see that um, that family side of him and listen to his you know his values and um, you know kind of what his family's um, you know what this career has meant to them is it, it made an impact on me it's just going wow maybe i need to spend more time getting to know the people on our organization do i have enough one-on-one -on -one conversations and um you know do i really get to know people at that you know intimate level that i feel like i know them at and then later realize that i don't yeah and that's we started the meet the see meet csfd segments in these in these podcasts uh, because we're recognizing that we're getting to be an organization. Uh, I know as people pass through the training division, some people I should know and I just don't, you know. Uh, if I know their name, um, I don't know much about them as, as a person. And, and I'd like to get better than that because when I, when I came on 23 years ago, um, we were a 
fairly large organization, but I, I remember the exact time that I met the last person that I needed to. I mean, I made it a point when I was a uh, fourth class on that I was going to shake hands with everybody and introduce myself. And I think probably many people I, I shook hands with more than once, um, you know, but when I, I remember uh, meeting that last person and it was like, okay, I've met everybody in the fire department. And I don't think you could do that anymore. You know, we're, we're a transient group, so we've got a lot of retirements going on. We've got uh, a lot of people moving on to other places. We've got a lot of new people coming in, and it's just hard to keep track of everybody. Uh, so our goal with that Meet CSFD portion is to, you know, take the people that we bring on here and tell us a story about yourself. You know, let us get to know you a little bit uh, with the idea being if you walk into a station and you see John Roy Jr. there, you know a little bit about him, you know, or if you see uh, now Lieutenant Lindsey Boone, you know a little bit about him. I mean, when you did the driver uh, training with him and he told the story about, you know, he used to ride bulls. I never knew that about Lindsey, and I, I used to work with him at 10s. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's nice to kind of get to know the people a little bit. I agree with you. Yeah. I think, you know, some of us too, It's there's a lot of um, experience and a lot of um um, kind of things that people have been through out there that they just don't talk about. And sometimes it just takes that one question to get them to kind of open up their book and, and go, this is who I am. Yeah. So I think another that another part of that is like, how do we get to that point of knowing, you know, how to open up the conversation? And this is, you know, one way to do it. Yeah. And I think we can do that through the Meet the CFS, CSFD parts and people listening to the podcasts and um, but when you're going out especially our newer firefighters I'd like to impress on them you know go up and introduce yourself Um, even if you've met them a couple times maybe it's been a couple years since you've seen them and they don't you know you may not remember that person and um, kind of break down those walls and and make this job more personable and make this job more family-like we may do a podcast in the future talking about are we still at that point where we can consider ourselves a family or we uh, maybe not at that. Maybe we've outgrown that and, and we're not in that position anymore. So, and that's a lot of perception, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can, we can make sure we can keep hold of that if we're just more personable with each other and we're not, you know, this guy on station one, that's a name on a sheet someplace else. Um, you know, when we see him introduce yourself, shake hands and, you know, when we can do that again and, uh, be personal and get to know each other. Yeah. One more thing I'd like to add to that is, um, you know, we as an organization, we like to see the the new member come up to us and introduce themselves. But one thing that I've noticed in myself over the years is I used to be really good at being that person to make the first approach, in, no matter what position I was in, whether yeah. I'm new or whether I was had been there a while, to walk up to the new person and go, hey, hey I'm Josh Winter. Nice to meet you. And what I've noticed over the years is the more tired I get or the busier we get or the more I have going on in my life, the less um, the, I guess, I, I don't work as hard as being that person to walk up and, and shake somebody's hand. Sure. And so I think even from, you know, especially as we promote up through the organization, you know, to recognize that and, and you know, maybe that new person is just they're 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 new and they're 
um, they're anxious and, you know, they just don't know what mm-hmm. to say. And maybe it's on us sometimes to take that first step. Yeah. My, my issue has always been I'm horrible with names. <laughs> Me too. Absolutely horrible. And I have tried, like, all these different tricks, you know, to remember names, and I'm just horrible at it. Like, Chief Dubay is yes. really good at names, and he can remember names spot on. I just – I'm not – good at that I don't do well with that so I'm embarrassed like I feel like I should know somebody's name yeah and I don't and so oftentimes I'm embarrassed so I tend to hang back and don't introduce myself it's not that I don't want to put the effort out yeah it's that I'm embarrassed because of my my shortcomings honestly I I'm I've got that that same issue and as soon as you said that Chief DeBay came to mind as well because he's always been the one that when he asks about the family he's he asked by name because most of us, kind of with that, you know, kind of the same issue, we're like, "Hey, how's your family?" Yeah. And then, and then, and then we're and then we're done. Oh, I'm not married. I don't. I don't have any kids. Oh, like, well, oh. great. I met your parents because you have parents, right? Yeah, they both died. Oh, nice. Okay. okay. Yeah, I'm not going to do this again. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. But you know, and I think a lot of that just comes back to, again us being willing to go, hey, you know what? I'm sorry, I'm horrible with names and and I forgot what your name is. I know we've met before, but I'm Josh. Yeah. You know. Yep, exactly. So this podcast with Chief Colas came about uh, when I was thinking about Rick Rawson. And for those of you who don't know Rick, he was a driver on our job, retired 4 years ago. Uh, that sounds about right. Four-ish years ago. Time flies. Um, he was a true character on our job and somebody that um, had an impact on me just by how personable he was. Uh, we called him Spoon. That was his nickname um, because he liked to stir the pot. You know, he'd never kind of come at you directly. Uh, he'd kind of just sit in the background and, and drop little things, you know, to kind of stir the pot and get people fired up and, and just have fun with it. And it was never... It was never out of spite. It was never mean uh, or mean-spirited. It was just all out of fun. We always got a good laugh. You know, you always felt better after your interaction with Rick Rawson. Right. But we didn't have, really have a means to capture what Rick was to the fire department and who he was before he left. So he's kind of just gone down in the annals of history of, of the CSFD, like so many characters and so many great people have. Uh and Chief Colas is a great storyteller. And so I wanted to get him on some sort of recording so we have a history of that. And, um, you know, like him, dislike him, love him, hate him. It's, it's, that's the way people are, right? You know, everybody has that. I have that. You have that. Um, but he's just a good person for the CSFD and one, one that I think it was worth remembering. And so I wanted to step in and get that on 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 tape. Um, so it's again the documented history of the CSFD. So moving forward, you know, as people retire, you know, kind of those uh, charismatic character type people, um, we'll pull them in here and we'll we'll have them tell some stories and 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 get on, you know, on tape on documented history who they were to our organization. Um, so we can, you know, say, hey, do you, you know, remember so-and-so? Yeah, we'll go look this up on Target Solutions or whatever our training platform is now. And he was just a really good person, and we had a lot of fun together. Yeah. Um, 
so I, Chief Coles, has, he's always been a mentor to me in different ways because I've never really worked directly for him. I mean, he wasn't my lieutenant, wasn't my captain, um, but he's always been around and um, and in parts of my career, and he's always been there to, to help me. I mean, I, I had a, a meeting that I had to go to with AMR, and, and he said, hey, can I go with you? And I said, absolutely. And just having him there as kind of a supportive role and then discussion after it, um, I learned a lot just from, you know, just being around him. But here's the one thing that I, that I will never forget, and this isn't really a story, but when my first son was born, so I was brand new on the job. Uh, I was fourth class firefighter. I was working at station one. So I think I was in my third rotation and my son was born. And um, that same day, engine one shows up at the hospital to, you know, to meet my new son. And it was Ty Mather, um, John Beja, and at the time, Lieutenant Colas. And unfortunately, I can't remember who. I think there was there was one more. I have to, I've got a picture of it somewhere. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, they, they showed up. And so I've got a picture of Chief Colas and my, my oldest, my newborn son. And then we fast forward, you know, 18 years. And the next thing I know, I'm sitting at his retirement, you know, where he's in uniform leaving the job. And then three or four days after that, I'm promoting to captain and he's sitting there in his Hawaiian shirt and civilian clothes as a, as a retired civilian. Mm -hmm. And it's just amazing how fast the time on this career goes and those interactions that you have with people that, you know, that might not seem like anything at the time, but you look back on them and it's like, wow, that's just interesting how those dots connected. Yeah, Captain Brad Tapper, old captain who was a captain close to retirement when I was in the academy said that to our academy you know you're going to be surprised how fast this goes by and i didn't think anything of it until 23 years later and i'm like man that went by quick <laughs> where did like, the time wow. go yeah that was amazing so you're right so i say let's go on to the interview see how that goes um, it's chief ted colas his wife stacy and his son michael so without further ado the colas family and their farewell to his Hopefully, fun retirement. Yep. Okay, welcome everybody. I'm here today with Fire Chief Ted Colas, his wife and better half. Yes. As most people would say, I think, because everybody seems to be magnetically attracted to you. <laughs> I, I, I was watching out there, and there's a lot of people that wanted to talk to you. So, Mrs. Stacy Colas, and then of course paramedic Michael Colas. So, thank you for coming on today. It's it's a great honor to have you here. Um, it's your last week, and so I wanted to capture you as a person. You know, a lot, of, a lot of us know you as the fire chief, but not everybody's been here as long as we've all been here. And obviously they've known you their whole lives. And um, 
we want to get to know you a little bit and hear some of the stories and, and, and tell us the tales of your career. And I think it's important that we capture some of that stuff. And you're the first one in a series. Kind of my vision for this is um, as people retire, and I, and I would love to have Rick Rawson. Like he's the oh, one yeah. that kind of inspired it, like the person that everybody looks up to and everybody respects and get some of those stories and get some of the, the feeling and the flair. And we send out the letters by emails, but I don't think that really captures the, the personality of the person. And so this will be now, historically, we can now look it up and say, well, who's Ted Colas? Who's this guy? You know, and now we've got, got you on video and we've got you in the sound booth and I've got your family here to tell some stories as well. So it's, it's great. So I think it's a great idea. Well, we'd like to start off, and, and we'll start with you, Chief Colas. How, how did you get to this point? Tell us about you and, and how, where you started and how you got to, you know, a couple days before retirement. Sure. Well, I'll start from the very beginning. I was born in Pueblo, Colorado. Uh, a lot of people think I'm from Hawaii. Uh, I'm, I hail from Hawaii, but I was born in Pueblo. Uh, when I was two years old, my dad decided to take a job in Hawaii, and he opened up University of Hawaii Food Services. So he designed all of their cafeterias and things when, back in 1963, when the university was kind of just starting to roll. And he moved our family out there. I actually had my second birthday out in the islands. And then I grew up there and stayed there all the way through my schooling until I graduated from Honolulu Community College with a fire science degree. Well, right around the fifth grade, uh, probably like every little kid, you're forced to watch videos in those days we called them movies because they were 16 millimeter movies on uh, fire prevention week or during fire prevention week and i saw a movie that just really stuck with me and it was a movie about a wildland fire and i'm sure it was all staged i, I don't think anything was in it was realistic but to a fifth grader it was all real and there was a firefighter that was uh, evacuating an area running away from this wildfire and he stops and he picks up a little fawn, a baby deer, and he carries it off to safety. And I thought that was so noble. I thought, that's what I want to do. I'm going to do that when I grow up. And so that always stuck with me from that point on. And then as I grew or grew up and uh, matured a little bit, I thought, you know, wildland firefighting is great and it's noble. And there's people that do a wonderful job at doing that um, for their whole career. But my calling, I felt, was more towards people and so to be a firefighter in a city. And so as soon as I was eligible, I took the Honolulu Fire Department entrance exam, and that exam is good for three years. The written test is good for three years, and it was amazing. I still got my little card someplace. I scored a 97 on the written test, and it ranked me like 102 or something <laughs> because there were so many people, 7,600 people took the test. So three years later, um, and this is right about the time I had just graduated from the community college and um, I'm trying to live in Hawaii and bouncing around from my friends' couches to finding a place to live and coming back here where my parents had money and could support me and then going back there. Um, for three years of that back and forth, I was taking the Colorado Springs Fire Department test because I was convinced I wanted to be a firefighter. And so I tested here three times. And that third year uh, that I tested, um, it felt like it went really well. It felt like I was gonna, uh, you know, I'm, I think it, this one's gonna, gonna happen for me. And it was right as that was happening that I got a call from Honolulu Fire Department. Um, everything was snail mail at the time, asking me to come out there and do a physical performance test, and I did that. 
And I, our first thing was to do a physical by a doctor. I had to fly out there to have a city and county doctor do a physical on me, come back, then go out for the physical performance test. It's a two-day test. I did that and came back. Then I get told that uh, the next thing is an interview for the Honolulu Fire Department. And I called up the lady's name on the interview and I plead, was pleading my case. I said, I'm so broke. I don't have any money. I'm borrowing every penny from my parents. This back and forth is killing me. Do I actually have a shot at the job? And she didn't want to tell me at first, but I was very persistent. <laughs> and finally she said, okay, you didn't hear this from me, but yeah, we're going to hire 24. And I think I was sitting middle of the pack someplace. So uh, you've got a job unless you blow this interview because it's with the fire chief. And I said, okay. And I planned on leaving here on a Wednesday, never to return to Colorado and make my life in Hawaii. Uh, but on the Saturday before that Wednesday, um, I got a letter in the mail from the Colorado Springs Fire Department saying that I was hired and accepted in the next training academy. And I tell you, that was a pretty tough decision. Uh, you know, all of my life and my home was in Hawaii, all my friends were there, but uh, my family was here. And it was also financial. Uh, I still remember in the Honolulu Fire Department paid fourteen forty-two a month to start. And the uh, Colorado Springs Fire Department paid sixteen ninety-eight a month. 250 bucks a month in 1985 was significant money. And cost of living here was so much less and I thought I've got to make the choice to stay here and now look at my family <laughs> uh, it was definitely absolutely the right choice good deal good deal um, I saw that video or that film oh yeah I remember, I remember that you remember film? This yeah I do <laughs> as soon as you said the deer uh-huh it's like, yeah, I remember that. So yeah. I'm dating myself as well. So <laughs> uh, I'm sure you didn't, Michael. You didn't. <laughs> no, you don't, you archive, don't maybe. <laughs> yeah. They Somebody were dusted off the film. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Did they have film projectors when you were in school? No. I, the oldest I remember were the uh, overhead projectors where they had the transparency. Uh -huh. And the teacher could write on that and it would shine up on the board. Yeah. But no, nothing, nothing no. more than that. That was like the biggest deal if you got to run the movie projector in <laughs> class. The AV kid, that was probably Luke's job. Miss <laughs> 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 Stacy, would you mind sharing with us how this came to be? Yes. So um, I was living at home and going to college um, at USC, and I had a friend that I had met when I was going to a different college in Greeley, and we were roommates, and she and Ted were going to um, Heart of the Springs Church, it was called Bellevue Baptist back then, and they were having a college and career, uh, 4th of July kind of a picnic. And so Deb asked if I wanted to go, and I was like, sure, I'll go. And so um, we're all meeting in the parking lot, and apparently that's when Ted saw me. I didn't see Ted. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was just going to have fun and, and you know hang out with some new people. Um, so we're downstairs and we're waiting for the food to cook and, and this one guy just kind of keeps running down and asking dumb questions like, what's your name? What do you do? And then he'd run away. <laughs> and I thought he was kind of a weirdo. Um, but apparently he was getting news about me and running it up to Ted so that Ted could figure out who I was. <laughs> I was cooking. No. Yeah, he was the one cooking. I didn't even sure. know he was cooking. I, I, just, I truly just didn't even pay attention to him. So that was our first um, encounter. Yeah, our first encounter. But I, what I do remember is that was 4th of July kind of time period. 
uh, in September, I think he called me on the phone and asked if I wanted to go on a date. And I thought, I have no idea who this guy is, but if he wants to buy my meal, I'll eat. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, yeah, I'll, yeah, we can go out. Um, and we went to Red Lobster and I tell you, that was the best date I've ever had. It was the most intellectual conversation. It was very mature. It was comfortable. It wasn't scary. It was very much a gentleman. Uh, we played putt-putt afterwards, and I got cold, and he gave me his jacket and, um, and you know, and then dropped me off at home and stuff. But that, I, that was a wonderful date. And that was in September. And so we dated a little bit between that, and by September, or December 4th, we were engaged. So, so three months? Yeah, it was very quick, but man, he was <laughs> quite a guy. I really fell in love fast with him. He was just a great guy. Um, so yeah, by December, and then my dad said, uh, you can't actually get married until you finish your degree. So I had another semester of college to finish the, up, and he was kind of working through his paramedic stuff. So it worked out great. We had enough homework to do that kind of kept us apart just to get that stuff done. And then by uh, August of 91, was when we got married. The, the way that you've, at least I remember you telling the story, is once your grandpa told you that, you went to the counselor and was like, I would need a degree as oh. fast as possible. <laughs> yeah, I, <did. laughs> I don't care what it is in, just get me classes so I can get married. Yeah, that's true. I was, yeah. Like when, he, when he did kind of say, you can't get married to Ted until you have this degree, I did go to the counselor at the school and say, okay, I have got this many classes, I'm kind of aiming this direction, what do I need to do? I wanted to be a uh, special ed teacher at the time. And when I went to the council and I said, here's the credits I've got, um, I'd, I just want a degree at this point. I don't have to be a teacher. I'll just, whatever it takes. So I ended up actually coming out with a degree in psychology instead of, you know, mm-hmm. education type stuff. But I did get my degree. <laughs> I did it because I wanted to get married. <laughs> well, and I'm just glad because you, you said, you know, there was this weirdo that was running back and forth. And I'm just glad he wasn't the weirdo. I'm glad she clarified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, wasn't, he wasn't the weirdo. <laughs> so, Chief, was this was this love at first sight for you? Was this the cliche, the story that Absolutely. we all like to tell? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny when she said that she was hanging out in the parking lot and throwing a football around with some other people in our uh, in our class. And I drove in, and my buddy, best friend, Mike Hensley, he's now the pastor of that same church. He was in that same singles group. And when I drove into the parking lot, he walked up to my car, and my first words to him were, who's the babe? That was the first words I ever spoke about Stacy. <laughs> so at least for me, it was love at first sight. She didn't know I existed, but I definitely knew she existed. Yeah, yeah you made good impact on me. <laughs> well, the best, best date she ever had, so that- It was. I don't know. Maybe she only had two dates. But <laughs> yeah, might not, might not be stiff competition. <laughs> okay, Michael. Uh-huh. Tell us about your journey. Tell us um, how you got here. Yeah, it's. I think it's pretty cool. I didn't uh, blaze my own path by any means. Uh, growing up, I always looked at my dad and was like, that's what I want to do. That I remember um, after the 9-11 towers, um, I thought that my dad was the only firefighter in Colorado Springs. I thought when he came home, there were no emergencies. Um, and then when 9-11 happened, I was in first grade. So uh, I don't remember it very vividly, but I remember afterwards we went to Leon Jesse's, the pizza place, and we're looking at the map that they have on the table and he's pointing out where the towers were and um, just kind of the, the layout of New York. And I said, well, where were you? And he goes, 
I was home in Colorado Springs with you, but that was the first time that I realized there are other firefighters. That, that, that's not just my dad doing everything. So um, I do most things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not well, but you do most things. No, I'm just kidding. No, but but honestly, that's since childhood I had that dream of being a firefighter. Um, I jumped around. I had a, a great PE teacher in elementary school, and I'm like, that's the job. Maybe I don't want to be a firefighter. I want to be a gym teacher. I get summers off, and I get to play dodgeball all day. That's, all the time. That, yeah. All the time. So I was like, yeah. that's awesome. That was short lived. Um, for a little bit, I wanted to work on the ambulance. I wanted to be a paramedic. Again, I wanted to help people. Um, and that's, I think, when my dad and I sat down and he said, listen, that's a great and noble job, but uh, you were a paramedic at the time, I believe. And you said, I can do the same job that they get to do on the ambulance and I get to fight fire. And I was like, that's it. That's, yeah. that's the move. I, w- I want to go into the fire service. And since then, I think that's really been my drive. I did the Explorers um, for a few years with the department and just kept pushing towards it. I tested uh, two times. The first time I B-banded and then the second time I was blessed to test high enough to get an interview. And on my 20th birthday, I sat in this room and had an interview for the position of uh, fire training. And that's kind of it. Pushed through the academy, made it through. some hiccups in, in probation and had some people that really stood behind me and pushed me through and mm-hmm. um, just kind of kept that passion alive. And now I'm blessed to have a position as a paramedic. Did you work at any other department other than here? I didn't. No, I, I had tested as soon as I turned 18, like the day of now I'm eligible. I sent an interest card out to a department in, I don't even know, North Carolina or South Carolina or something. And they responded and said that there's same sort of thing back you had to fly out to take the test and all that stuff and that's when it became real <laughs> i was like i don't want to leave <laughs> i i love colorado springs too much sure uh, this is the department that i grew up watching and it's really the only department i've ever really wanted to work for mm-hmm. yep so let's go to go a different direction now so tell us one thing about yourself that Probably nobody knows. Now, you guys might know this about each other because you're a close family, but... I don't know. I think most people on the job know that I I wrestled in high school, um, but I didn't ever have the plan or intent to. I was playing baseball when I was younger and basketball, and then wrestling with my brother at the park. He was showing me some cool move that he learned because he'd wrestled since he was really young, uh, and he broke my wrist. And I had another kind of epiphany, like, I got to toughen up. I got to learn how to wrestle to hold my own around the house. (laughs) So that was really what got me into wrestling. And um, I'm glad I did. I think that there's a lot of life lessons to be learned in the sport. Um, But yeah, initially I didn't have any intent to wrestle. Well, that's interesting because I'm, I'm looking at your right ear. Yeah. Right now. And I was just, while you were telling your story about how you got here, I was like, I wonder if he wrestles. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not much, um, but I'm proud of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't wasn't nearly anywhere close to being the best wrestler. Sure. But uh, I like to think that I worked hard, and it's kind of a badge of honor in the well, sport. Well, there's a lot of, you know, we're going through these with my kids now. My kids play hockey, and there's just so much you can learn from yeah. from sports and overcoming adversity and mm-hmm. working as a member of a team and responsibility and commitment, and it's just so... Absolutely. Anytime you can get into those sorts of activities, I think it's just, just great for kids. Absolutely. And so, I mean, whether you play through high school or you know wrestle through high school or 
go on to bigger and better things it's all great life lessons yeah know? and it probably helped yeah. you prepare for this you know you very much so yeah the like i said i played basketball and baseball in uh like youth league and, and middle school um in high middle school is when i started wrestling in high school i made the decision that's what i wanted to stick with and there's definite there's life lessons to the team aspect of how to work as a team that's what we do on the fire service um but I, I personally, the biggest life lesson I learned was through wrestling was um, losing and not having anybody to point the finger at. Mm -hmm. When you're on the mat and somebody beats you by points or pins you or whatever, um, and you stand up next to them, shake their hand, and their hand gets raised and you walk off the mat, um, it can be pretty devastating, but the reward of learning, I have to do better. That's, that's the plain and simple fact is I didn't perform or I didn't train well, and I got to fix that. So. I, I'm very glad that, that my parents both kind of pushed us into sports and then guided us through wrestling. Sure, sure. Chief, do you have anything that we don't know about you or are you too big a public figure now to <laughs> keep, keep many secrets? Oh, there's probably a lot you don't know about me. But, <laughs> I got a couple. Um, I'll tell you one, and this is, it kind of goes along with what Michael said because both of my kids were, I think, really good wrestlers. Um, in high school, I was a quitter. I quit everything. Um, and that started actually in junior high. Um, it's a, a, you know, daddy issues. I've got a, a story about my father and um, buying a pair of cleats for a football team and, and how that worked out. But the, the, the impact that that had on me was just to make the team, just to prove that I could do it, and then I quit. And I did that all through high school. It didn't matter what sport it was. I could make the team. I was, I, as a sophomore, I wrestled. Um, I beat the senior in my same weight class to, to, uh, in, in a wrestle-off for our first meet and quit right after that. Um, and and it, I, I look back at it now and I realize that it really was the impact of my dad's words on me. Now, I love my dad and there's, I don't, I don't have, harbor any resentment toward him. But it helped me as a person and as a father growing up uh, and having kids of my own to realize that, man, your words mean something. They, they have an impact that sometimes you don't realize. And my dad's words had such an impact on me that, you know, when I was in high school, I was just a quitter. That's all I saw myself as. I could, I'm going to make the team. I'm going to prove that I can make it, and then I'm going to quit. Um, and I just saw myself as, as this person that would, that would do that and give up. It wasn't until I was an adult that I thought back and thought and really tried to analyze why did I do that through um, high school. And it was because of the, this conversation that I had with, with my dad that he, um, he, he just didn't have a lot of confidence in me to be able to make a team. And those words stuck with me. And so I was bound and determined, I'm gonna try out for a lot of teams and I'm going to make every one of them. But I didn't care about the sport. I just cared about showing him that I could make the team. So it's a you know deep life lesson of Ted Colas, <laughs> right? Um, but, but I think the lesson to share with everybody is be careful with your words. Man, when you're in that, in that trusted position, um, being a dad or something, boy, be careful with your words because you have no real concept of the impact that they can have on your children uh, later on in life. And, you know, Again, I love my dad, and if he was here today, he'd be so proud uh, that I w was able to progress to fire chief and things like that. He, my dad, loved me. He didn't, you know, I don't have any of those true daddy issues. 
I just got that one memory that really made an effect on me. Really stuck with you. Yeah. You know, I have those moments with my own kids, with my own son and daughter, and we call them father of the year moments. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I try to teach them, you know, there's there may be no more powerful words in the world than I'm sorry. Yeah. To like recognize that you made a mistake. So I say I'm sorry a lot because uh-huh. I'll go through something and I go, oh, that was one of those daddy of the year moments. So I'm like, oh, father of the year, um, I'm sorry, you know, and this is, you know, sure. the reason I'm sorry. So it's, it's good, like, to understand that your words do have impact, but sometimes you're going to make mistakes and just, you know, we, we say own them. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, because of the history that of my making a team, then quitting, and how often I did that, even when I got hired on this department, the, the one thing that does resonate with my dad, anybody that knows me has seen this firefighter's helmet that hangs from my rearview mirror. Every vehicle I've had since 1984, my dad bought it for me before I was hired, and he said, I bet you won't quit this. Mm-hmm. So he, he did have confidence in me at that point that, you know, he bought that for me before I even got hired and knew that I was going to be a firefighter for the rest of my life. And, yeah, I hang that from my rearview mirror. I always have. I've, I've always had that. In fact, I bought him one yeah. similar to that because um, I was sure that he was going to get hired. Yeah. Yeah, your, your guys' traffic accident uh, – was it two years ago now? Uh, a year ago. A year ago. Um, that was that was one thing at the hospital. Um, when he was in the hospital bed, he's like, go get that. Go go back to the car and, and get it. So that was one thing. When my mom and I went to the, the salvage yard, mm-hmm. I was scoured. We, we had to, if nothing else, that that had to come. So we got it, and it's in the new one, in the new yep. truck. Hanging in there now. Mm-hmm. We talked about we being the ones of the, the folks that talked about resiliency we talked a lot about the older generation and how it was pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you know it's very you didn't show a lot of emotion you're very um i guess set in your ways but very very stern about what the way they did things mm-hmm. and hearing your story makes me think that your father was trying to teach you exactly what he was trying to teach you and the, the best way he knew how yeah mm-hmm. you know trying to motivate you and when it finally stuck it stuck because you've yep. been here for how many years now 36 years 36 yeah. years and he's probably looking down going yep mm-hmm. did the lesson the lesson was yeah. good uh-huh. you know what i'm saying oh yeah i do and that is a that is a, a neat perspective to to think of it in that way but yeah it you know, there's a lot of things that shape us as we grow up and make us into the people that we are, and, um, and I don't regret any of them. And even the ones that, even the memories that are sometimes hurtful, still help to, to develop me into the person that I am today. Miss mm-hmm. Stacy, you got one. I thought of some. They're funny and okay. kind of dumb, but um, <laughs> I really like clean teeth, and <laughs> I tend to be a little Bible thumper and little. <laughs> Jesus loves you. Yeah. <laughs> that's one thing. Yeah. Michael always teases me about when I do that. <laughs> I get in those moments, but yeah, it, that's that's pretty impressive, though. <laughs> um, I we're like my dad said early on. He's best friends with the pastor of the church, and I tease him because there's nobody, including the pastor, that reads the Bible more than my mom. That's yeah. that's pretty impressive. <laughs> we used to tease her because of that Saturday Night Live skit, the uh, the church lady. <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what role has religion p- 
planning your life and oh who you've become and as a firefighter it's it can be a very tough career yeah you know what i'm saying and the people can be very blue collar and, and we'll say gritty mm -hmm. how's that how's that shaped you as a firefighter and how's that shaped you as a family well my faith is the central um, part of my being that's who i am um i I got to be a son, I got to be a brother, um, a cousin, and a nephew before I became a Christian. But I was a Christian before I became a husband, before I became a dad. Um, and it's just, it really is who I am. But my faith tells me that I'm supposed to have a very high regard for everyone with whom I will cross paths. And I think that that has helped me to care about people. Uh, they don't have to have the same faith as me. They don't have to look like me. They don't have to grow up the same way that I grew up. They just have to be people, and I see them as people having value. And when people have value in your eyes, you tend to treat them that way. And I hope that I've done that. Um, that's the, the one thing, um, you know, as you approach the end of your career, a lot of people will ask you things like, what are you most proud of? What do you hope that you be remembered for? You know, we put together a long list of things that we've accomplished as an administration in the last five years, and I could throw that whole thing away. Uh, there's some great things on it. I don't want to minimize those, uh, but the thing that I want people to remember me be about is that I cared. I cared for our firefighters. I cared for our community, and I think that stems from my faith. Um, my, uh, I, my God would be disappointed in me if I didn't treat people with high regard. Yeah, that doesn't mean that I don't lose my temper and get angry sometimes. That Everybody who knows me knows that happens. Um, but uh, I, I, my, God would be disappointed in me. There's a, there's a verse in the Christian Bible in Colossians 3, chap, chapter 3, verse 23, that says, Everything that you do, do it as though you do it for the Lord and not for men. And that's kind of a life verse for me. The last thing I want to do is make... Um, my, my God disappointed in me so I'm going to do everything that I do like I'm doing it for him to please him and in doing so I can't help but make people feel valued did you have that sense of value for people before you found religion um, was that something that was instilled with you in parents by your parents and then enhanced or reinforced by you know my parents were really good people but they never uh, we never attended church as a family, not regularly anyway. We would go hit and miss on very rare occasions. Uh, but no, it, it, you know, I was not a good kid when I was in my younger years. Um, in elementary school, I was, uh, doesn't sound that bad in today's world, but um, back in the 60s when you cut out a class and smoke dope, um, you make a name for yourself in an elementary school. And that was the kid that I was. I was uh, in fights a lot. Um, I was a kind of a scrapper. Um, me and my best friend at the time were, um, they tried to expel us from our elementary school, but the neighboring elementary school knew our reputation wouldn't take us. Uh, it was, I was just not a good kid. Um, in fact, when I, uh, the two twin brothers, uh, their dad was the pastor of our local church. They befriended me. They used to get spanked for coming to my house and hanging out with me because I was that kid. Um, but they never gave up on me. And by them 
befriending me and uh, getting me to attend church with them, my life was changed. I, I turned around. Everybody on this department knows that I'm a big baby and I cry all the time. Whenever I get on, you talk about anything personal, I get welled up with tears, I get a, a knot in my throat and I just can't talk. It's just who I am. That happened when I became a Christian. It, it didn't happen before that. I was not that kind of a kid growing up. Um, but it, it happened that day and it has never left me. Um, and trust me, man, if there's something that I wish would go away, it's that. Uh, you, it's hard to grow up in a fire station and watch a Hallmark commercial and get teared up, man. You get teased a lot, you know. Uh, but that's just who I am, and, and I can't hide it. That's why the day rooms are so dark, though. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of people crying in those rooms. They just don't want everybody to see. So. Yeah, again, the sun's in my eyes. Yeah, yeah. go back to the sun. That excuse. Exactly. How about, how about you, Michael? How is it? How's it, how did that shape you growing up in that that uh, in Christian environment? And yeah. What has it brought to you as far as being uh, a new father? Yeah. Um, man, I don't. I don't even really know how to put it into words. It was. It was always something. It, it was never the hit or miss. My family. Every Sunday we went to church. Um, every Sunday that my dad was home, he went to church. Every Sunday that he was at work, my mom loaded up my brother and I, and we went to church. That's just what we did. In middle school, um, just like I'm sure every middle school kid, you'd have a, less of the, than a desire to go to Sunday school. It's just not the cool thing to do. Um, so there were times that my brother and I wouldn't go, um, but it was kind of an expectation that that's, that's what we do. And there's a reason for it. It's not just to, to go and put a check mark in a box, but we go because that's important to us because we call ourselves Christian and to do that is to grow in your faith and to mature in your faith and um, and be around other people with the the same values and instill those friendships. Um, I didn't have to search for Christian friends. My best friend, uh, th this is kind of a cool story. I'm starting to take us on a tangent. Um, my dad said that when he met my mom, his best friend, Mike, came up to the window. He's now the pastor at the church. My mom was going to school up in Greeley and her sweet mate is now the pastor's wife. And so really close family ties. Their oldest son was the best man at my wedding. He's my best friend, has been my whole life. And so it's cool to not have to search for those friendships because my parents instilled that. Um, it has kind of come full circle now being on the fire service, uh, wanting to fit in. Like you said, it's kind of a, a tougher um, workforce, um, just kind of rough around the edges. And I want to be part of the in crowd, the cool guys. And so I've, um, I've noticed on occasions letting my values slip. Um, and then that, that conviction saying, no, it's, that's not what it's about. It's not about being cool to your peer group. Um, it's about standing up for what's right and doing the things that, that the scriptures tell us about. Um, so it's, it's kind of been a little bit of doing it cause that's what my family did. Um, all the way to, no, this is, this is who I am, and I have to make it an, an active choice every day to, to kind of keep it up. Uh, sorry, I'm a, an emotional rock like, like my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Proud <of you>. Very stoic. <laughs> the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? No, no, it doesn't. When you held it, see, nobody would have known. And my son, too, he cries all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's, he's only three months old. In but the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. Makes uh, cry. <laughs> get it together. <laughs> <laughs> you what you say about your dad and doing what's right is the story that I have about you. 
and I, I'm not sure you remember, but um, you, you will remember my long hair and my soul patch uh -huh. back in the day. Well, you were my battalion chief, and we were at Station 4, and you came to deliver my eval. And you marked me down on my eval for having long hair. Now, there was a story behind the long hair that you found out later, uh -huh. which was my best friend, his, his mother-in-law got diagnosed with cancer. And so I was growing my hair out for locks of love to create wigs for cancer patients. Um, but it wasn't a story that I shared very often. It was just I just had long hair. And when people would ask me about it, I would talk about how much I hated it. <laughs> like, I, you know, I just hate this long hair because I didn't want them to think um, that I that I was doing it on purpose. Like Pat Hamilton could pull it off and <laughs> Chip McLaren could pull it off, but I didn't really feel like I could pull it off. I was doing it for a purpose, and as soon as I could get it get it off, I would. Well, you had came and delivered my eval and marked me down for grooming or, or something and the long hair, and so I was sitting in the office at Station 4, and I was kind of like, looking out the window, waiting for, like, oh, this is going to be a ha-ha, you know, this yeah. is going to be a big joke, and nobody ever came to the window. Yeah. And so I signed my eval, and then I was like, well, maybe they'll pop out now, you know, maybe the joke will be up, and, um, well, nobody popped out. So I, I kind of stewed over it for a couple of days, but I called you, and I said, you know, I, I have issues with, you know, the way I was graded on this eval. Um, can we talk about this? And you came down, and, and we talked about it, and I think... You even mentioned, you know, every time I hear you talk about your hair, you tell you, you say how much you hate it. Like, why don't you just cut it off? And then I told you the story and it's, well, why didn't you just tell that before? And why don't you share that story? Because that's a great, great story. Um, but what you did was, is you got a hold of Rich Brown and said, hey, I need to reopen this eval because I didn't, I didn't score him fairly on this. And I think you said, well, Chip McLaren, I didn't score him down for his hair, but I did for yours. And that, that kind of stuck with me as you're always willing to do what was right. Like, go that extra mile and do what's right by people. Like, you're going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And if you make that mistake, just apologize for it and just make it right. And so that's, that's kind of stuck with me throughout my career. So if you don't think you ever had an impact on me, see, there, there, <laughs> there's the story. <laughs> but I can, I can reflect on that and, and, and see you know, where I try to do right by people. And I'm like you, I make mistakes and, and, and do things wrong, but I always try to correct those mistakes if I can. Mm -hmm. And I should, and, and be honest with the person and have that conversation, and, which you did very well. And so I really appreciate that, so. Well, you're welcome. And you know, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about the uh, dad of the year moments, right? Everybody makes mistakes. Mm -hmm. And man, I hope that nobody ever thinks that they can promote to any position in the city or otherwise where they're immune from mistake making. And it's just not gonna happen. As long as we're human beings, we're gonna make errors and mis make mistakes. And there's something I think uh, in uh, mature about admitting it and putting it behind you. And don't, don't try to hide it, don't try to pretend or make excuses for it, man. Just take it on the chin when you need one on the chin and say that you made, you made a mistake. And I've done that throughout my career. Some of the, um, our new lieutenants, whenever we promote somebody to, to a lieutenant for the first time, I sit down and I go through expectations with them. And I warn them right up front that this is gonna be about an hour and a half of storytelling, me telling stories. And almost every story is about how I learned from my mistakes, how I did something wrong, but I've grown from it and I've learned from it. And I've, I tell them that so that they don't have to re-experience some of the things that I did. And maybe they can recognize them up front and avoid them. Uh, but man, there's so much 
great learning life lessons from the mistakes that we've made. And we, we tell our kids those mistakes. So, so we try to steer them around the roadblocks that we ran into, right? Mm-hmm. There's just so much learning that mm-hmm. happens and, and you have to make mistakes in order to learn. Because if you're not making mistakes then you're probably not really moving and learning, so. Yeah, sure, yeah. It's part of Absolutely. it. What would you say was your favorite rank in the fire department? I've gotten that question a lot too since uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks and I think I'd say two of them. Um, I think I would say paramedic. I loved being a paramedic. I loved the hands-on aspect of that position. I loved being in the senior firefighter seat when you uh, go to a structure fire. I loved that part of it. I loved the patient care part of it. Um, Just really enjoyed doing that and think that I did it well. that's the first one that pops to mind. And the second one, when I really think about it, is this one, is being the fire chief. Boy, that, that could sound so egotistical um, to, to some people who would hear me say that. Um, but it's because I've been able to be in a position to help make a difference and to do some good things for an organization that I poured my life into and that I love. Um, and for the people uh, that are in this organization. Uh, it, it's just been fun, it's very rewarding. It's the most challenging by far position I've ever had, um, but it's been really, it, it's, I've enjoyed it. I've had a, uh, had a ball doing it. And uh, you know, people ask me too, are you counting the days, are you counting the minutes? And I always tell them no, because I'm not that anxious to leave. I, I enjoy what I'm doing right up until the very end. And, and man, that's, that's the thing that I've always wanted to do. I've wanted to leave this organization, this stealing quote from Dennis Compton, a longtime fire chief in Mesa, Arizona. Uh, in one of his books, he asks the question, the book is called When in Doubt Lead, and he asks the question, how do we become known as the same enthusiastic and energetic firefighters at the end of our career that we were at the very beginning? And for 35 and a half years, I've told people, I don't know. And now I can tell people I do know because I'm at the end of my career. And I feel like I'm still as enthusiastic and energetic about what I do. And the reason is it falls back to that that faith conversation that we had. Everything that I do, I try to do it for the Lord and not for man. If I could please him, I'm, I'm going to make an impression on the people around me and, and do good things. So um, that's really uh, my motivation and what's kept me going. But I, I love being a paramedic. I love being the fire chief. Do you love being a paramedic as, as much as he does? Or? Yeah, yeah. I, um, recently, I, I've been able to watch a few um, individuals work on their lieutenant's exam, and I have little to no desire right now to do that. I'm having too much fun uh, doing the medicine stuff. And you can ask my crew. I, I get maxed out. There's calls that frustrate me, and um, I, I, I feel like this is currently the hardest position I've ever been in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm still excited to go to work i i like it i like the stories that we get to come home with the um everything from the the extreme stuff that we get to see and do um to the the kind of the silly calls when people they've reached their their ability to cope and we get there and we're like really that's that's your line huh but it's still fun it's still that's you get great stories out of that you go back to the kitchen table and you laugh and joke and we get to do it again and every time the tones go off i get excited and um, I, I think I'm going to be in this seat for quite a while. 
Well, I don't know. I got a call from your 73 today. Yeah, maybe not. Uh, yeah, he, uh, <laughs> he told me that your uh, CPR on a cat failed today. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. <laughs> the cat came out of a, a structure fire, um, and we just put oxygen on it, but no bueno. The call, the reason why I was late to this, though, uh, came in as a stroke and then reported cardiac arrest, and we got there, and family's doing compressions on a gentleman with his eyes open, and we yeah. just stopped compressions, and he's like, my ribs hurt. Yeah, I'd say I believe they do, sir. So we had a fire in fours one time, and Mark Shavi pulled a dog out that was rolled over and had a tongue hanging out. And Chip McLaren, for did you know Chip? Mm -hmm. He animal lover, dog oh, lover, yeah. uh -huh. deep down to his very core. <laughs> like as as much as you guys love Jesus, as much you love dogs. <laughs> All right, well I can That's, relate. Okay, so we pull this dog out and we set the dog down and he said, well, "What are you going to do?" And I'm like, oh, "We're trying to put a fire out here. I'm just going <laughs> to leave the dog for now." Uh -huh. And right after he said that, that dog jumped up and ran as hard as it could down the street. Like, I don't know what I just went through. <laughs> I, know, I don't want to be here. <laughs> and Chip trying to edge down the street to go get this dog and to save this dog. So, wow. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, this cat, I'm, I do feel bad because um, I think it was uh, Donnie Rickert was on helping with the cat. And he just made a, a small comment. He said, well, somebody cares about this animal. And I'm not a cat lover. I, I have two dogs and I, I love them, but... I'm not nearly a Chip McLaren for animals, um, but it is somebody's pet. And so we did what we could. And unfortunately this one just didn't, didn't pull through. That's a great perspective. You can keep that forever that somebody cares about this animal, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's a great perspective from Donnie. Yeah. And one, we had that, we had to have that same perspective about people down at station four, because you oftentimes you run on people that's, been discarded by society right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they're slaves to addiction their mental illness and things like that and and it's hard to run on them call after call after call but when you recognize it hey they're human and they have a story yeah. story too and, and that story is personal to them and you make that you know you're part of their story now then mm -hmm. you, you can run those calls and some people can't but I just I loved it at fours that's even those calls and just yeah. dealing with the people and hearing the stories and um, it's a lot different now because I think our homeless population has, has increased since you know we you know when chief when you were a paramedic there was 10 of them downtown right you knew them all by name and you knew their habits and what their goals were we did. and they were nice to you because you were going to help them through the system but now it's 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 different because they've increased and sure you know different circumstances but you yeah know, so that's yeah. the same kind of you know, just because the house is in a palace doesn't mean we shouldn't treat right. it treat with as much respect right. as the castle or sure. the palace. Mm -hmm. So what's your favorite paramedic story, Chief? Your favorite story is when you were a paramedic. Oh, um, you know, I carry a picture around in my phone of a young lady named Molly Maybe. And I met Molly when she was 14 years old. Um, you know, we, we talk about our expanding city now and we need the need for new fire stations out east. Well, we responded to Molly's call for help. She was at a Sky Sox game at the Sky Sox Stadium, and uh, we responded from Station 10. She was in cardiac arrest. Fortunately, this 14-year-old girl was sitting next to a stranger who happened to be a pediatrician that was doing great bystander CPR. Uh, and when we got there, 
Um, we intubated her, we shocked her. Uh, she went back into a viable rhythm. We got spontaneous respirations. By the time we got to the hospital, her eyelids were fluttering. I took my oldest son, David, to meet her the next morning. I went back home and I was just, just thinking, man, I wonder if she's gonna make it, I wonder if she's gonna make it. And so for some reason, David went with me and we went to the hospital, I think he was like two years old and he got to meet Molly. She was sitting up in her hotel or her hospital room and um, that's why we're here. That That's why we're here. We're here to make a difference. We're here to give people what I like to call that unexpected tomorrow. And now Molly is, I think she's just turning 40. She's had a heart transplant, um, but we still stay in touch. Uh, and um, it, and those are those are the reasons that we do what we do is so that we can give people that unexpected tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite story as a fire chief yet? Oh, you know, you're too busy living it. <laughs> yeah, you are busy living it. But there's a lot, you know, that um, where you get things done and you you're you're proud about it couple weeks a couple months ago I was doing a station visit and somebody asked me what are you most proud of and it was the first time I'd been asked the question and I didn't know how to respond and I started thinking and I said you know when we changed that um, our FLSA period from 27 days down to nine days that was a huge accomplishment people don't even remember that and and to the folks out on the line that was just something that should have been done and it got done Dude, that was weeks of work and dozens of meetings and really working hard to get that one little thing accomplished. And it, it's a it's a blip on the screen to most people, but man, I'm proud of that. That that was a lot of hard work. That was when I was really brand new as being the fire chief and being able to work through that because it's something that meant something to our folks and it was the right thing to do. So there's little things like that that have made an impression on me that maybe make an impression on nobody else, but man, it, um, that that's the fun part of the job is um, the work that goes on behind the scenes for uh, for something that's, that's seemingly pretty small on the surface. There's a lot of energy that goes on beyond the scenes. So Stacy, you obviously have two generations of firefighters around. Mighty proud. <laughs> and I would say, what, what's been the best of all this for you? Oh. Uh. You know, I think I just it makes me proud. They're out there doing things that make a difference in people's lives at, at a moment when they're at their very worst place, you know, and they're beyond, like Michael said, they're beyond their ability to cope. And um, to know that I've got two people in that, that system that's working on, those, working on those moments for people, I think that makes me just super proud of them. That, I, I love it. I really do, and I, and I'm not afraid. I, I you know I know it's a dangerous job, but um, I d- they are fully capable of doing it. They know how to be safe. They know how to hold themselves together in or- in order to help somebody else get through something. So I don't know. Pride is really what comes to my mind. Yeah. How did Stacy support you, and how did? your mom support you in this career because it's 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 a challenge I I think about when I was at station four for all those years and just being tired for that long and just being grumpy for that long and I'm I'm amazed that I still am married (laughs) you know and I I I didn't realize how tired I was till I you know got out here and was sleeping in my own bed and 
and I apologize to my wife. I'm like, I, I'm sorry if I was a jerk for that long, and thank you for sticking with me. I just didn't, I just didn't know. And so we get people that get into our system, you know, at our busier stations, and then don't ever leave, but they don't realize they're fatigued and tired, and it's it takes a lot of support from the people at home to to support that. So how have you experienced that over your years in the fire service? Well, in the, the years when I was a paramedic, um, I had two little boys at home, and um, I'm going to say something that is probably reflective of everybody on this department when they're speaking of their spouse, but um, this spouse is my hero, and she has been a rock. And when I would come home sleepy or tired from a shift and she could see it on my face, she would get the boys to go outside and just let me sleep for just a couple hours. Just a, that couple hour nap was all I would need and then I could pop back up and, and engage for the rest of the day. But she would recognize that and give me that space to be able to just get that rest that I needed so that I could get back in the game. And that was so stinking helpful to, to be able to do that and know that that was gonna, that she would always do that for me. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, just being there it, when, when you've got two teenage boys or two uh, junior high boys, and when we're gone for 24 hours, that can be a long 24 hours for a spouse <laughs> or a brand newborn, right? Yeah. It's a long 24 hours for yeah. a spouse, and, and Stacy never complained, not one time. Now, there were some times when I was a 73 <laughs> um, that the boys were in junior high that she called me and said, can you make it by the house? Um, those are probably pleasant memories for her and not so much for Michael. <laughs> yeah. Just bang him upside the head because I'm not hitting him hard enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was scary. <laughs> Mom was in the red. She's yelling at us, and we're still fighting or whatever we were doing. And then she walks in all calm. She says, go to your room. Your father's coming home. And firefighters don't get to come home. Yeah. So as a kid, you're like, oh, man, we're... We were in for it. Uh, so, yeah, that's what not fun phone calls. I was going to say something, though, when he was talking. Right when he, I was being introduced into the fire service, it was right after we got married, there was a conference that we went to, and I don't know the name of it or anything, but it was phenomenal. And I think it truly is what saves a lot of marriages if they would listen to that conference. But he was saying that there's a lot of professions, and air traffic controllers is one of them, and a firefighter was another. Police officers. And police officers. So high-stress high jobs, I guess. And the guy was trying to explain that when you have a spouse that has a job that is up here um, stressed out at their job, they need to be given that exact amount of time or space to come down. And if you would allow them to have that, they will be more stable. At least that's the only part I got out of that conference. And that, that stuck. And, and I, that's what he was talking about. When, when he would come home and I could tell, Oh, brother. I mean, I wasn't happy about it, but I was like, okay, he's going to have to sleep because that's how he would cope. He's just, I got to get alone and, and just sleep. And it was, wasn't always fun, but it was the best thing to do to, to save the marriage, really. And that was Dr. Kevin Gilmartin. Okay. Yeah, that's um, what I was wondering. Yeah. yeah. The police department brought him in and they had plenty of space, so they offered us to bring our spouses. And um, I'm so glad that Stacy attended that. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I'm going to transition now and talk about being the fire chief and um, going home with stress. It, this is a, more of a funny story that I'll come home and Stacy is that engaged, devoted spouse <laughs> and she will say to me, tell me about your day. 
And my response is, I look at her and say, please don't make me relive it. <laughs> and then we go about our, our evening together. And uh, I kind of put the day behind me because I'm going to hit the ground running again the next morning. But this is my time to be at home with you. Let me be at home with you and not, not relive my day. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, you don't ask too many questions. Just <laughs> give him space. All right, whatever. Do what you got to do. <laughs> Michael, do you have a favorite fire department story yet? Um, well, I mean, when you were talking about um, – your your save i i haven't had a, a cardiac arrest save um any anything like that anything where you continue relationships i've had one that i've gotten a phoenix award for which i hold with great pride um i was also told I, I tease about it that initially when i did the handoff at the hospital the doctor said i don't really think this was a true arrest that same doctor was the one that gave me the award so i <laughs> i take it i say that it's real he gave it to me no take backs um, but I did with Cody Hahn on squad 11, we had a similar call. Um, gentleman is outside of work. Um, he told his coworkers that he just had a really bad headache, went out to his car, um, and got into the passenger seat instead of the driver's seat to drive home. Um, they saw him, he moved from the passenger seat to the ground. And I don't know if he fell or, or set himself down, but that's where he was when we showed up and Cody Hahn and I are talking to him. We, sit him back into the car to be more comfortable and we notice um a very high blood pressure and a very low pulse as soon as the ambulance gets there we're like hey we we gotta this is a a a load and go kind of call we set him on the cot and in all appearances he codes he has a cardiac arrest um i feel for a pulse and he still has a pulse but he is now gcs3 not communicating at all um and a, a deviated gaze so Cody Hahn was done with paramedic school. I had just recently been promoted. Um, so we're both in the ambulance. I said, Cody, you're, you're coming in with me. I called uh, engine 11 to attach to the call to pick up the squad because we left everything on scene and we're going code three to the hospital. Um, that gentleman pulled through. He's the only patient that I've had that has come back um, and, and visited. And man, that's that's a cool feeling. I. It's exciting. He had a, a, a burst aneurysm is what we saw. And I, I'm just, I, I read about that. I know in the textbooks what that, that means. And that's usually a very um, grave prognosis, but he came back and was able to come visit. It was kind of funny. It was Captain Bartlett at the time, um, Jacob Heal, a couple other guys. I can't remember the whole crew. Actually, I think Chris Richardson and George White. They attached to the call and they see people climbing in and out of the squad as they're pulling up the road. So they, they freak out. Um, uh, Bartlett and George White get out, and they're running across the field trying to make sure that people don't steal our stuff. And so they're yelling, and these people look up, and they go, oh, oh we're so sorry. You, you guys were just helping our coworker. We wanted to put everything back. So a failure on my part. <laughs> I left the squad unlocked, running. I mean, everything. It was a, a crazy call. I'm, I'm new and a panicked paramedic, um, and these people are – just the goodness of their heart are doing everything they can to help us because we help them. So that was a cool call um, that that has really stuck in my in my memory. I got one. I don't know. You might have to like click it off. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of funny calls that I just don't know. You know. It was one of the first ones, and he was going into an apartment, and uh, I think the guy had a cut on his foot, and you were helping him down the stairs, and oh, you were afraid to goodness. touch him. This okay. If this doesn't get cut out, I yeah. have to say Fred Salazar because he's going to want to hear this. This is when I was on probation at Tens. Um, 
we go into an apartment complex and like you said there's somebody with a, a cut foot and i am i am as green as they come <laughs> to the fire service i mean i didn't i don't know if we traveled south of constitution very much growing up and so i'm at tens and <laughs> i go in carrying the gear go on to check this gentleman's blood pressure and i look back and everybody's they're they're close they're there to help but they're not in the apartment i'm <laughs> the only one inside and i'm confused by that checking this gentleman's blood pressure and he looks at me and says it moves and i'm like what moves he goes the bugs in my feet and i'm like oh no <laughs> never heard of anything like this before yeah. he's got uh, scabies and they're crawling around and he sees him go in and out of this cut on his foot and i like i said i'm green i don't know all I hear is bugs in my body. And so I'm walking <laughs> this gentleman down the hall and I'm kind of guiding him, making sure that he doesn't fall. If he falls, I'll, I'll help him. But if I don't have to touch him, <laughs> why touch him, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they're, from then on, it tends, uh, they remind me that scabies can be transferred and Fred would make up how far they could jump. And <laughs> I'm getting back, I'm back in the engine out of the call and I'm starting to scratch and itch. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that, I know that's a, that's a funny call. It's unfortunate for the gentleman, but man, yeah. that, that one stuck with me. He I think that, that the quote was on the way yeah. home from that call, Michael looked at Fred Salazar and said, if I had to move into that apartment, I would live in my parents' basement forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I did say that. If that were the two choices. Ty Mather had a call kind of like that at fours, where Ty, I don't, I don't know why Ty got ambitious on this one. He's like, I'm going to attend this call, right? And so... <laughs> He goes up to the door and he knocks on the door and the guy opens the door and goes, the flesh-eating bacteria, the flesh-eating bacteria is attacking me. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) And kind of, I think he, like, touched him or did something. And Ty just kind of backed out. (laughs) We kind of moved in. It's okay because we knew it was a psych patient. And Ty would sit down with us. And I remember looking back at the engine and Ty has got the hand sanitizer. (laughs) 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 Laying it all over himself, putting it in his mouth. Yeah, yeah. Those, there are so many funny stories that just the I like to think about um, the people since I grew up here. I'm born and raised in Colorado Springs, and I am still in contact with some of my friends from high school. Um, just the things that I've seen that mm-hmm. I can't even have a conversation with them because they oh, yeah. they can't relate. And some of them are funny at, at somebody else's expense, which is unfortunate. But if if somebody has to be there to help them and you're going to get a funny story out of it, put me there. I'll go because yeah. I'm going to get the funny story out of yeah. it. It's fun. I, I thoroughly enjoy our job to, mm-hmm. to every extreme. And you'll find later in your life you'll go to groups of friends and, and acquaintances and your wife will have to elbow you and go, <laughs> you're not at the fire station <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> you can't tell like, that oh, story. Oh, yeah, I've got to get back, snap back into what What's a appropriate. normal reality <laughs> is, yeah. right? Chief, do you have a favorite fire department story? Oh, man. Um, you know, when I was did the broadcast for uh, Springs TV, I talked about starting an IV on an elephant. That's just a fun story. It just doesn't, doesn't happen every day, those kinds of things. Um, but a favorite fire department story, I, I don't even know. There's so I, many. Yeah, I like some of the stories that you told. Um, again, the, the image that I had growing up, we work for a very different fire department than the department you worked for yeah. initially. Um, but we still do like center cake. 
but he would tell stories of just putting the cake right on the table and eating it off the table because there's no table point. Cake, yeah. That was just to get a reaction from a particular lieutenant. I'm not <laughs> proud of that, but uh, yeah, I did that. Uh, uh, water fights, that's a fun story. It used to pour your glass of water over your head. That way you're already wet and ready. Me and uh, Jim Shannell worked together at Station 10, and there was a very rough cut group there. And in the summer times, none of our stations had air conditioning. In the summer times, if Jim Channel and I made eye contact, everybody was going to get wet. We would just grab a, whatever we were drinking at the time, pour it over the top of our heads, and I'm like, okay, I'm already wet. And we would go after the rest of the crew. And see, some of the folks that are in our fire stations, they just know me as Chief Colas. They don't. I was a 23-year-old, wide-eyed youngster and pretty naive youngster when I got hired on this job. And um, and I had every bit as much fun at the fire station as anybody did. Um, but, you know, you and, and if anybody that remembers me back in those days were to say to me, boy, you've changed a lot over the years, I'd say, yeah, I grew up. I, I'm not the same person that I was back then. And, um, and a lot has changed. But, boy, I had as much fun in a fire station as anybody, anybody had. It was a good time. Yeah, those are, uh, I have always fun stories I remember <laughs> listening. I, I like just the little things that I don't think people think about the impact that it is, but um, growing up at the firehouse, going there for meals. And I know COVID's changed that format a lot, but um, now working with individuals like, hey, the first time I met you was at Christmas at Station whatever. And that's just, that's cool to me. It's, yeah. it's fun to, and now to bring my son up, hopefully once this ends and introduce him to my fire family that that's that's pretty cool yeah. that's a good way to call it is a fire family because yeah. when when dad was working at the stations and we'd come for thanksgiving meals and stuff like that yeah it was all the families you know when we just and it's cool you yeah. know you're sitting around the table with a whole bunch of other new people and they're all they're all kind of doing life at the same time that that we are you know Everybody's one of the regrets if there's a regret in my career it would be that um and, and I learned this by, by watching Michael. Um, been on the job for five years. He's been at station... Six. Been on the job for six years. He's been at station <laughs> 11 for six years, right? He did yeah. two rotations for his uh, in his probationary year, and then he stuck at his third rotation. Station 11 hasn't left. But he's developed really tight friendships mm -hmm. with people there. And I've got a lot of acquaintances on the job because my longest... Uh, station assignment in a fire station was at station eight I was there for 14 months and I, I got bounced around all the time I knew because uh, because at the time there was no bid system when I was growing up in the organization I knew every time that the beach battalion chiefs would meet I was gonna move and it, later in my career I got excited about it like hey they're gonna meet I'm gonna have a new crew I'm gonna go someplace new every single time I got bounced around lots of assignments were six months or nine months and and just moved around from station to station and I loved it because I got to see a wide variety of the department and meet a whole lot of people but in retrospect you know I hear about him going out with his crew and the things that they do together and the time that they share with one another and I just never developed that because I was never at a station long enough to develop those really deep friendships so um, if there is any regret it's that I, I wish that I had had those uh, deeper longer rela uh, relationships based on station assignment my longest assignment to date is this one fire chief been doing this for five years haven't done anything in 36 <laughs> years for five years. Yeah. You're a very good storyteller. I love does, to tell stories. Does, is, 
what is your perception of the value of storytelling and being a leader? Yeah, I think that if you can get people's emotions involved with the lesson that you want to teach them, um, you you make an immediate tie to long-term memory. And if you if you are standing in front of a whiteboard and just going through points, you can convey the same message, but if you can tell a story and get that emotional tie-in, they're going to remember that a whole lot longer than the points that were on a whiteboard or on a PowerPoint slide. And so I love to tell stories. And I think every <laughs> one of us, every one of us has stories. And man, I wish we were all better at telling them because the community out there needs to know how much we care. And our firefighters care. We make a difference in people's lives. Well, I want to take the time to thank you. Thank your family for coming in. This was turned out better than I expected. It was really, really a good time. Um, thank you for your service. Um, thank you for taking the helm of this ship when it was a little bit, the waves were a little <laughs> bit big and we were rocking back and forth and I think you helped steady it. Um, you are exactly what we needed the past five years and I think we're headed in a, in a great direction. So hopefully you feel you left this department better than when you got here. Um, so thank you. I appreciate your time and thanks for coming in. Yes. You're welcome, Justin. Thank you for doing this. And uh, I think our ship is going in the right direction and I think we got the right guy at the helm. Randy Royal is going to do great things. I think so too. I, I do want to, on the broadcast, thank you. This is, uh, sorry, emotional rock, huh? Um, <laughs> I'm the emotional rock. Yeah, I don't totally. cry. <laughs> totally. Uh, since, since I was little, I've looked up to you. And uh, 36 years is impressive. Um, I think it's cool that uh, the way I explain it to people is he's not counting down the days. It's not like, man, get me out of here. I've, I've done it. I'm ready to leave. Um, but it's also not going to be one of those guys that you have to like, hey, party's over. Things <laughs> all gone. Come on, time, time to leave. Like you've done everything you've wanted to do on the department. You have left it better, um, and uh, I get a benefit from that. So, thank you. You're welcome. Can't look at it. <laughs> well, I think God has blessed blessed you in order to do all that you have done. Because I think He's really the one that's behind everything that you've ever gotten to do. He's been God's been the one letting it happen. No question. So. Well, again, thank you, and here's to new beginnings and yeah. not yeah. the end of anything. Yep. Yeah. So enjoy, <laughs> enjoy the next adventure, and we hope to see you in and out as, as you're continuing on with whatever the, that next adventure will be. Wearing Aloha shirts. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Chief. Thank you're you. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome back. That was our interview with the Colas family. I hope you enjoyed that. What did you think, Josh? Uh, it, it was a great experience for me to be there. 
Uh, I'm a, the type of person that likes to listen to stories anyway, likes to get to know people, kind of kind of dig into their life and get to know them as people. Uh, so it was a great experience for me, but you listening to yeah. it, uh, you weren't there for that. And so what did you think? I'm, I'm actually glad I wasn't there for that because it was a very, it was an intimate conversation. Um, and I think the bigger you make the group, the less intimate it becomes. And um, the conversation just with having Stacy there and Michael there and um, with Chief, just their family, um, it really allowed them to open up and give us an opportunity to see kind of behind the curtains, look at who they are, you know, and, and Chief talking about, um, you know, being born in Pueblo and, you know, his whole life and how he got to where he's at right now. Um, I'm glad that I wasn't in the room. I'm glad that I got to listen to it because I just basically I just turned off the light and closed my eyes and, and listened to the conversation. And I felt like I was right there and I felt like I really got to know the family in a way that I wouldn't have gotten to. And it also made me realize that I wish I knew his family more than I do right now. You know, I wish I had had those opportunities on the job and, and taken the time to, you know, ask those questions of who are you? You know, why are you here? You know, what do you value? Mm -hmm. um, I appreciated, I mean, he was very candid. He was very open about some of his, um, you know, his childhood, the way he reacted to things as a kid. I mean, he even says he was a bad kid. And, and um, to share those stories just freely and openly uh, and showed a, a big part of who he is um, and who he became. And, and like I said, I just really appreciated him opening the door to that and the, and the whole family coming in and, um, you know, the emotional rocks that they are. Yeah. It was what they kept calling themselves, though. I think, uh, Michael, if you're listening, that she, the, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree, but that's okay. That's kind of kind of makes it even that more genuine, yeah. you know, that it provokes, you know, that, that kind of emotion from both of them. Yeah. So really what, what I appreciated about this and the timing of it was that this ties together with the resiliency podcast, because in the resiliency podcast, we talked a lot about vulnerability and this was the chief of the department and you know, a newer, new-ish member, six years, not five, six years on the job member of the, uh, of the organization, Michael, um, having that vulnerability to be able to call themselves the emotional rocks and be able to talk about, you know, their time on the job and um, what they've done and, and uh, what's important to them. And so just kind of putting these two together, I thought it was just perfect timing for it. And it was just the right people in the right place at the right time to be able to hear these stories. Yeah, so thank you to the Colas family. We're greatly appreciative that you, uh, not only for your 30-plus years of service, and I say that as a family because they were all a part of that. You know, we, we saw uh, Chief Colas day in, day out, and got to know him here at the job. But as everybody knows, it's it takes a village to, to raise a firefighter uh, just because, you know, of the support that we need and, and the, the things that happen in our lives. Um, that that require that support and that that family union. It's nice to nice to see that and then to celebrate it at the end of a of a long career. Yeah, no kidding. Um, before we get close to you uh, closing this out, the one thing I would want to say or add to this is that I just I hope everybody else 
that listens to this enjoys this podcast as much as I did, um, but then also takes the time to think about the relationships that they have on the job and thinks about if they're putting enough work or putting enough time into um, not only building relationships, but really getting to know the people that we're working with on a on a different level than, you know, joking around the firehouse and, or running calls together um, and, and, and really getting to know the people that we get to spend this huge part of our life with. Yeah, and I think um, we would do well to, to get to know the people better because we have a lot of a lot of good people in this organization. Um, it makes the organization tighter. Um, we can be there for each other because we know about the trials and tribulations that we're going through and, you know, understand that other people are going through those same things. And so it's, it, it, it allows us uh, to be a support system for ourselves as well. Um, so the burden isn't all on our family, and we do have that built-in support system. So if we need something, we shouldn't be afraid to ask. And uh, if we need something, we know people are going to come whether we ask or not. And I can relate that on a, on a minor way that, you know, my wife just got COVID and just the calls and the texts and the offers to help. Um, I didn't I didn't recognize that I had that kind of support system at this fire department. Um, and so I'm very appreciative of that. And, then, and, it, and it wasn't necessarily that we needed a whole lot, but it was just the idea that people were thinking about us and, and took, you know, just 15 seconds out of their day just to text and say, hey, how's everything going? Do you need anything? And that, and that was enough to, to show that support. So we're great, greatly appreciative to that. And, um, you know, if we get to know the people better and we build those relationships, that comes more naturally, I think. Yeah. I even think just kind of through this podcast, it's, it's given me the opportunity to um, reach out to people or accept phone calls and texts and conversations from some of the few things that we've already talked about and just kind of opening up some of the communication across the job. So um, it's being able to be a part of this and, and just, you know, have these conversations with you and bring people in has changed things for me just on the on the communication level and the building relationships level so sure again if you'd like to bring up a topic uh, you can give us the topic you don't have to be a part of it if you're too shy to come on and, and, and talk about it we can we can develop the topic for you but we're always looking for topics uh, my scope of knowledge isn't that large uh, so I need some help with topics and some ideas. Uh, so bring them to us. You can get a hold of Josh or myself or anybody at the, at the training division. If you'd like to be a part of the podcast, that's certainly a possibility too. We'll be more than happy to have you come on. We've got some things uh, coming up where people came and brought us some t ideas and some topics and they were willing to come on with us. So we'll do some of those in the future. We're on all major platforms. You can search CSFD Productions and it'll pop up. Um, as we get more popular and we get more more listeners um, that'll kind of come to the forefront of the searches so go to your major platforms also if you like what you're hearing uh, let other people know we're getting you know about 150 listens per pod podcast well we have 500 people in the organization and some people may not know that we're doing this uh, so share it with your friends uh, if you like what you hear let them know so they can listen to and of course hit hit that subscribe button I feel like a YouTube person right now. <laughs> Subscribe and hit the hit the little bell so you get notifications when we do new podcasts. Uh, but go ahead and do that for us, um, and we we would greatly appreciate that because we want to reach out to as many people as we can. Um, you don't have to sh just exclusively share this with CSFD people. If you hear uh, 
somebody needs needs to hear some of this stuff or would like to hear some of this stuff outside of our, our fire department, it's open to the public. Go ahead and share it with them as well. Um, we're not going to have a meet CSFD today because that's pretty much what this was. So you got a whole hour plus of meet CSFD of, of Chief Colas. But we are going to do an out the door. Uh, the music this week is When I Get There by Maya Isaac. Uh, you can listen to that music on Artlist.io. So that's artlist.io, or you can go to Maya Isaac, and that's M-A-Y-A-I-S-A-C.com to get all of her music. And we thank her for being royalty-free and allowing us to use her music on this podcast. So as we leave you today, When I Get There by Maya Isaac. See you, CSFD. Yeah.